Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Ruben Potter. Ruben works between journalism and graphic design under the name Untold Stories. He creates visual narrative that supports solidarity, justice, and equality. He finds himself as a designer at a time when design is the last thing the world needs. Until more ethical approaches present themselves, he's designing, writing, and teaching. He's a tutor for the BA in graphic design and the MA in nonlinear narrative at the Royal Academy of Art in The Hague. The Politics of Design, his first book on cultural bias in graphic design was published in 2016. And on today's show, we're gonna be focused most on Caps Lock, how capitalism took hold of graphic design and how to escape it and how to escape from it. And that was published just this past year. So I wanna welcome Ruben to the deep dive. How are you? Uh, I'm good, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, you know, people often ask me how I come across my guests and people that I want to bring on the show. And I never have a good answer because it is usually quite random as to how I find guests and, and find their work. And a connection of mine posted someone else's post on LinkedIn that mentioned your book. And the moment I read their description and how they were interacting with your work, I was like, this is a dude that I need to have on the show. So this is the the random way in which I discovered Caps Lock and discovered your work. And, you know, I want to start off with really your introduction, right? Like you make it clear in, in that, that the world doesn't need more designers, but yet here we are talking about design. The language of design has been cut across many different disciplines and spaces. You address that in the book. So I really want to give you an opportunity to explain how you think about design and why you're kind of pushing back on the notion of design as something needed in the world. Yeah, I mean, I've been working as a designer for 20 years. I teach design for 10 years. Uh, I mean, this is what I do, you know? If I was a carpenter, I might write about capitalism and carpentry, you know? So, so this is what I know and this is my world. So this is also the reason why I write a book about that relationship because you can write books about many kinds of relationships with, with capitalism, obviously. So it's it's not so much that I believe that design has to go or should be abolished or, you know, there's some of that kind of cynicism. Basically, it's all going to go bad anyway. Why are we even still doing this? But then, so while researching this book, I found this news article about a map that was found in Spain and it's 17,000 years old and it's basically a huge rock with lines in it. And uh, they discovered it before, but then somebody realized it was actually a map. So people had like meticulously actually drawn lines, scarfed lines into that rock. And I think that's visual communication. And arguably many things that are found in cave paintings are also forms of visual communication. Uh, I mean, insofar their art or visual communication is maybe debatable, but I think we will always have forms of visual communication in our society. And whether or not we kind of define that as design, I feel as somebody who does things with typography, who does things with writing, uh, with images, with communication, I feel related to that work. 
So I'm more kind of trying to get, wrap my head around like how can we, you know, something that is like intrinsically, basically like a human need, how can we keep on doing that, but only the good part of it? You know, how can we can kind of get rid or kind of sideline what we don't need out of that? And it's curious because design and the world of art, and I'm, and I'm using these words in like the biggest way in which we capture them, has often had this like mythology or ideology cooked into it that it requires patrons of some sort, folks who are there to support the work, the vision of the artist in a classical sense or of the school of thought that is that is signaled around design and automatically once you start to put in that notion of patron there's a notion of commerce and that notion of commerce leads to capitalism right so i want to give you an opportunity to you know kind of walk through that thesis of how how we default almost to these notions of relationship and and how that affects our chances of keeping what's good in these visual languages and losing what is more problematic, i.e. capitalism, commerce, and so on and so forth? Yeah, no, of course. I think it's a good question. I mean, we also have to remind ourselves that, you know, under feudalism, there was also sponsorship of art. Basically, all the museums in the Netherlands are filled with this kind of art. People from a nobility that were the only ones that had money to ask painters to create portraits creating kind of like personal iPhone photo collection, whatever. But of course, it's also not entirely true because it's not that people without means didn't have art. You know, there was always song and there was all theater. There was oral tradition and there's many kinds of art that have also not survived. So what I was thinking about is that there's this book by David Graeber and David Wengro that recently came out, which is called The Dawn of Everything, which is basically about kind of trying to understand if history if before agricultural societies, if societies were always like non-hierarchical or if they were hierarchical and they they show evidence that there were both and there were even a mix of those. And what they also point out is that they say like, look, this period in, in Egypt, we see as a you know important period because we have pyramids and all this evidence. And then for like a few hundred years, we have nothing or very little, and then we have another period with pyramids. And then the period in between, uh, historians kind of like describe that period as not so interesting, nothing was happening there. And Graeber and Wengro point out that if there's no pyramids being built, that doesn't mean there was no interesting society, you know? So of course, if you have like a really hierarchical society, whether it's feudalism or, or capitalism, where like a smiley, tiny portion of the population basically owns most of the wealth, you know, as we, we kind of see today, Yes, of course, you will have types of art that would not be possible in a society that, that is more egalitarian. Uh, because, yeah, who's going to build pyramids with their pocket money? You know, this is not how it works, right? So some kind of grand gestures around art and even architecture are kind of only possible in this situation of basically a dictatorship or a kind of like suppression. But that doesn't mean that that's the only type of art that is around. So what I see, for example, I've been kind of moving a little bit more towards activist circles, at least trying to see what I can do there and what I can help. And what I see, for example, in Extinction Rebellion and also in the, the kind of anarchist movement in the Netherlands is that people have almost no resources, but they, they do a lot. You know, they like, for example, you have a lot of young 
anarcho-feminists now in, in Amsterdam who are squatting houses because they have no, you know, they're young, they're students, but they have no place to, to live because housing is too expensive. And then they transform that whole squat into a public space. They do cinema there. And that whole process is also, I think, a design process, you know, done with very little resources, but people still manage to survive. They use resources that are left over in the market, or they, they also get support from people. So I think there's other forms of creating value and sharing value than a wealthy person pays for another person to create a kind of art. And of course, the art world right now is, of course, I mean, very differently organized, but at least in design, if there's a, a use value, then yeah, there's people will still need objects. They will still need visual communication and it will not yield as much money. It will not allow us to, to live as comfortably as we do now in Europe. But I think that's still, there's still enough value to be produced to share. And it's, it's interesting you, you mentioned these movements and how we think about them, these current movements, whether they're in Amsterdam or other parts of the world, that are focused on trying to build something different. And as you were describing that, it, it reminded me of Occupy, the Occupy movement, where you're seeing attempts to build something different. And there is a, a design process in that. So I want to go and shift us a little bit into exploring those elements of design, that design is not only product and advertising and functional tools and visual tools, but we're thinking about the values and the ways in which we are building the world that we live in and, and design factors into the physical spaces we inhabit, the, what the buildings look like, who are they there to serve. So I, I want to give you an opportunity to tackle some of that and how those values kind of formulate to build something different that requires more solidarity and mutual aid and support? Yeah, that's a big question, of course. Yeah, big statement too. Sorry, dude, <laughs> I, I, I do that. No, no, no. <laughs> no, 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 this is, this is good. You get to the point. I mean, so... So there has been a lot of like discussion after Occupy. This was actually during my master's. I spent some of some time in Amsterdam in the in the camp there, but actually not a lot. I was studying and working at the same time. There's a lot of critique, you know, like why did Occupy not succeed? You know, there was definitely like, like an anarchist undertone. David Graeber was involved, and there was a lot and this a kind of like thing like, okay, you you have to propose something. You cannot like say, let's get rid of an existing order and not create something new. And I think there was some like tactical and strategic things that were missing with that movement. But I think it's also something that we tend to, when people propose or discuss alternatives, right? This is something I try to do in my book. Then people automatically question like, we replace it with them. What has to come into place? So someone from a French graphic design magazine asked me also, how can we keep afford living in Paris if we cannot work for multinationals anymore? And then I'm also like, yeah, but in, in Europe, we have, um, I mean, not everyone, but many people have a high standard of living. And if everybody in the world would live as the average European, we would need three times the size of the earth, right? So the question is not, it's not the question like, how do I keep my apartment in, in the center of the city? You know, the question is like, why do we build a wall around Europe? You know, and, and what does that mean? And where did that come from? So I don't think, like, I don't see it as my job to, to say like, oh, these are the five steps to make sure that you can keep getting your income, but you can do it in an ethical way. Because that's not going to, in the end, that's not going to be enough, you know? 
so rather what I try to do is I also try to say, look, the only thing that I think is interesting to at least think about alternatives, you know, work towards different forms of even in a small scale, you know, like I try to do in my classroom, I try to approach uh, education differently. When I, when I work now in design, I try to work with local printers. I try to now set up my own kind of printing shop where I have my own production. So I, yeah, I'm not kind of relying on, on some printers that maybe are not so environmentally friendly or et cetera. And that's all, those are all kind of small steps trying to kind of organize different forms of, of design. So I think we still tend to think in like kind of these big modernist ideas of planning, you know, like it has to be either communism or capitalism, or it has to be this or this. I mean, face it, we, we don't live in pure capitalism. You know, many things we do now are not left to the market. Only think about all the COVID money that has been pumped into companies, but also in given to people as a kind of like handout in some countries. I mean, in, in pure capitalism, the state doesn't do that, you know? So, so we also live always in a kind of mix of different kind of formations, even though, of course, there's like a dominance. So I think rather than thinking in, in like large scale plans, I mean, we have to think about scale. And of course, we still want to be able to, for example, make smartphones. Maybe that will be very you know, useful and still make MRI scanners. I, I think that would be useful. You know, so we, we have to think about scale, but, that's, but it's not that you can plan these things from like the top down because that will automatically generate a kind of repression. And so I am like for basically for both strategies. So on the one hand, we, we have to put pressure on institutions. We have to use our right to vote. You know, we have to use our civilian agency that we have in at least kind of democratic societies. But also on the other hand, we also should not leave everything to the state and also allow ourselves to understand that we also have power on a smaller scale in our neighborhood, in our own family to, I don't know, to approach the relationship we have with others in a different way. So this is a little bit what I try to also include in the book to give people a little bit more agency than just like, well, you can vote every four years and let's see what happens, you know, because that has not proven to be enough. And it's interesting that you highlighted this point that when we start to discuss from a societal perspective of something that is different and what is going to emerge, those who are very connected to, to whatever degree, the status quo would tend to revert to what you're, what you just mentioned, right? So if you don't like capitalism, then what's next, right? Like, you know, there's, there, you have to have the full thesis blown out. And I want to offer and get your thoughts on is how much space do we give to allow emergent ideas to blossom as we go through our processes of thinking about what can be new? You know, like how much grace do we give ourselves to discover rather than to have all of the answers, so to speak? Oh, yeah. I mean, of course. I mean, also maybe taking it to a little bit more personal level. So my, my parents were baby boomers, you know, so they came from a generation that was just lucky that the war was won by the good side, basically, that we're, we're, we're not like Nazi Holland at this moment, right? And the obligation to build up that country using also aid from the United States, from the UK, because those were the countries that had liberated Europe, you know? So there was like an emotional and a, and a very political sense of responsibility and also kind of like thankfulness. That is like really rooted uh, with, with the, also Christianity in, in Western Europe, rooted in the kind of 
yeah, in the kind of society. And that's not so long ago. And in my lifetime, I, I saw, you know, the Berlin Wall fall. Uh, and then it was like, there's no alternative, you know, the end of history, etc. And and of course, also the, the things that came out of the horrible situation in the Eastern Bloc and the kind of repression under Stalin and in uh, Romania and all these countries. So that's kind of recent, right? But uh, what I realize now when I give talks to students who are 17, 18, who are basically born in, in the 2000s, who have known nothing else but neoliberalism like in their lifetime, they feel the, the, the struggle. Even though they're in the art school, which is usually a, a privilege, you know, at least you have to have, it's not that expensive in the Netherlands, but there are still people who cannot afford it. Uh, and also not everybody gets that opportunity, not every family says, ah, it's fine if you go to art school. You know, there's always social pressure. So, but even with these students, I, I was doing a talk on, on my book and I would have expected a lot of students to be like, what are you talking about? You know, why is capitalism bad? Or, you know, but everybody was like, yeah, I, I see what you mean. I cannot get a house, you know? I have a study debt. There's no, uh, there's no reason for me to get a job. I can make more money as an influencer. I can make more money with NFTs or, you know? So, so, so they completely get that. So, the fact that I see a lot of, especially younger generation, being very open to these ideas. We've also seen this in the Netherlands, where a lot of young people are really fed up with kind of parliamentary politics and this continuous kind of shifting to the center, you know, and you see that in, in basically everywhere in the global north, right? That what used to be a labor party is basically now kind of neoliberalism light. And they see that this situation has not gone improved since the 1980s for them or for their family if they're on the wrong side of that equation. So yes, it's very difficult to imagine, but I also see that these new generations feel the pressure more and more. You know, I mean, many other people already have been feeling the pressure for a lot longer, but now it's kind of reaching the middle classes. And then you see that, yeah, this is also reaching another uh, kind of point in the, in the discourse. And I want to do one more question on this sort of bigger cultural ethos that we're in and tie it back to some of the examples that, that you gave at the beginning of, you know, these moments when historians would, would say, oh, this is a period when something is happening. This is a period when something isn't happening and link it by these big linear movements when obviously we, we know that these things are actually very fluid, right? And one of the things I want to ask you about is the idea of public work as a design concept that, you know, despite the, the common ideology of pyramid construction, these were often viewed as public work, you know, places of academy and of study and of deep science where people worked willingly as, as part of a, a greater project. How do we build or can we build in a neoliberal existing state more of the public good and public work when we think about the extension of design? Now, I think it's an excellent question. So I think, first of all, this question really depends on where you are in the world, right? So for example, my partners from Colombia, there's a very different situation happening there right now, you know, where they would welcome a kind of like neoliberal version that we have in the Netherlands compared to the kind of, you know, narco-fascism that you have there reigning already for so, so long. Also, what's happening in Brazil right now, I mean, these are situations that are really, uh, really dire. So I think actually that we, we have always and we did always make these public works. There's many amazing things that happen in my own neighborhood, what 
what kids are developing, what kind of music they're making, you know, what kind of like tags they're writing in graffiti, what kind of memes they're making at home. So I, I think people are just want to produce culture all the time. And we have a system in society where we kind of basically make a hierarchy of what kind of culture goes in what, you know, so if it's in a museum, it's a different form of culture than, but then what you see, if you look at the museums, then all their, basically most of their collections are actually from wealthy people, you know, because those are the people who collect art. So even though we are not seeing art as only that, that's still kind of the, the residue of what art used to be. So I spent some time in the art world because my work, work was exhibited as a few art galleries and uh, museums. And I also worked for some biennials. But I really, yeah, I've really felt uncomfortable with that where you have like a biennial and you have a lot of social work and activist work. But then the opening, you basically see the richest 0.2% of, you know, and then you realize, yeah, this is the only thing that makes this kind of art possible. So I think this kind of hierarchy that we have between what is like good art and craft or hobbyism or whatever is also something that I have a big issue with, you know? So there's really, of course, a lot of interesting artists who do more with community work, who work with volunteers, who also try to share the kind of wealth that they create with their work. And there's many amazing examples of that, but, but I do think that kind of public Art, public works don't have to be spectacular, you know, they can be, but they don't have to be. And maybe if they're not, they're also maybe they could also be less exploitative, you know. So and, and what I've seen also that, I mean, there's also really interesting things happening now. There's in Germany and, and France, there's two, uh, two kind of autonomous towns. One is in France and Brittany that is quite well known. It's called the ZAD in the south of Brittany, where there's this area where they were going to build a big airport. Activists went there to stop have the airport being built because locals needed support to, to make sure this airport wouldn't be built. And now it's kind of like an anarchist city, basically. You know, they built their own houses. And so this is, of course, happening on a very small scale. And I cannot judge if that is like a a successful way of, but there's like lots of culture and art being created like all the time also in these places. So I'm not too worried about the fact that, because I think people love to participate and love to create for the public good. It's just that people also need to eat, you know? So it, we need to find ways where that value comes back to people. So it's not just like, uh, yeah, I'm doing this for, for, you know, for love, but I still have a day job. And that, that also becomes kind of part of how you, yeah, how, how you are valued. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that is a, a critical distinction to make, right? The the breaking of the idea of the starving artist, creator, you know, the person that does work just for the love, like that people do need to eat. I, I want to get into some of the specifics of, of the book because one, it's, it's a visual treat to go through. So I think as people pick it up, that's one of the things I, I really want to highlight that like it's a, it's a really amazing depository of so many images and putting them together to make a, a fairly compelling narrative. But I think the the average person doesn't necessarily feel the the link of design and capitalism in the same way that you've highlighted it in the book, which is why design is so powerful, because it can act much like capitalism, neoliberalism, so invisibly upon us that after a while it just sort of feels like oxygen, right? You don't even notice it happening. So I want to give you an, an opportunity to kind of explain the basic way in which graphic design has become so entangled with capitalism. And then I'm going to go into like some of the sections, not all of them, <laughs> but some of them. 
Yeah, awesome. I mean, I'll, I'm going to try to keep this very brief because now because it's also important for me to be able to explain this book, you know, to whoever. That's uh, important for me. So I did say like, yeah, you can also write a book about baking or about carpentry and capitalism, but. The, the link with graphic design is kind of specific because what we see, and that, that's where the book starts, at the moment you have like a scaling up of society, right? So you go basically from a small community, like let's say a small town, you can still have economic exchange just saying like, hey, Philip, you know, can I borrow some rice? I'll give it back to you tomorrow. Like you don't need money. You don't need contracts because, you know, I know you and, and we know each other. And unless there's like a, yeah, there's a big issue, usually you, you can get a kind of around these forms. So what we see is that the moment societies start to scale up, and this is Mesopotamia, et cetera, first agricultural society, you start getting contracts. You start getting things that have to be written down and have to be kept. No, no, yeah, you know, you borrowed something from me, I, I want it back. And, and then you see the relationship that, that we have actually this whole series of graphic documents, contract, but also bureaucracy, birth certificates, death certificates, passports, but also maps, you know, all these all are graphic documents, graphic design documents, but also banknotes, coins, objects made by designers, which have a very strong graphic component that are made not to be counterfeited and also are made to give us trust in the system. You know, I will not trust like a rent contract written by hand in a comic or with the comic sans or something, you know, like it has to look kind of legit, you know, it has to have this kind of look and feel. The same is for goes for passports. The same goes for, for money. Shouldn't be have to be counterfeited. So first of all, graphic design plays a very important role in establishing the trust, not only for economic relations, but also for states, the way that the state kind of controls and, and wants to kind of exercise power. Because that happens a lot of times through documents, through graphic documents. And then there, there's, of course, things like branding and advertising, which is, of course, the most obvious one. Designers are needed to create demand, you know? Like if I, I give the example of my book of bottles of water that are sold for 200 euros. I mean, if I just take water from the tap and I put it in a plastic bottle, nobody's gonna pay 200 euros for it. I need a designer to make like a fancy bottle, to make a fancy logo, etc. Ask a designer to sell something, they can do it. You know, ask a designer to sell air, because this is what we're trained in, you know? We're trained in creating a kind of aesthetics that makes it kind of appealing, even though the project, the product hasn't changed or the project is actually useless. You see that with NFTs and all these things. So there's a branding aspect is very important in this. So these are basically the kind of the, the most important aspects of how kind of graph design is not only necessary to kind of allow this economic exchange, but also has been very important, especially with branding and advertising, in creating these super brands like Nike and Apple, which are basically, it's like 99% design. You know, that's, that's what the value of these objects is. It's almost all of it is design. So that's, I think, those are the most important aspects of that relation. And it's interesting because I think in your examples, what you've done is also share the ways in which the design element is weaves through our most benign experiences all the way up the chain to those that are, are more significant. When you talk about the way your passport feels, right? There's a, a weight and touch to the paper, the graphics that will be used on the surface of it, the fonts that are chosen, paper, no matter where you go in the world um, for uh, money, paper money, it tends to have a similar feel and touch that lets you know that it is real or, or holds value. So 
how do we get to the place where the authenticity and the trust in so many of our interactions are tied so closely to the visual world that is all around us. You know, there's a lot of iconography that is that is sort of standard that we denote to have meaning, right? Whether it's eagles or, you know, some the sun, there's there's all of these things. So how did we get here to this place? And then how do we become more cognizant of it so as to call it into question when it's working on us? Yeah, I also think it's important to maybe amplify that, like I'm trying to kind of show how the biggest issues of our time, which are the climate crisis and, and the rising inequality, you know, that we have 700 million people who basically still go hungry and that, that figure is rising. How, how like the, the creation of, of products using cheap materials, you know, and, and try to avoid with tax loopholes and, and this kind of thing, create these kind of cheap commodities, which are sold then for a high price, how these create this kind of cycle of, you know, exploitation, waste, and design. This is basically what Caps Lock is about. You know, I'm as a designer, if I work in a studio, and I worked in studios for like 20 years, I was locked in this cycle, you know, because, yeah, for example, I, I was once asked to rebrand one of the biggest telecom companies in the Netherlands. And I was like, but this was just rebranded two, two years ago. I mean, the logo is still fine. The letterheads are still fine. The company didn't change. No, but they want to appeal like more of the now, right? So then you feel the pressure of, no, no, we need to keep that stock. You know, we need to keep the profitability. So I, I don't feel I was designing for the public, even not for telecom, which is telecom is, a, you know, actually a quite useful technology that needs to be communicated and promoted. That, that's fine. But, you know, making, rebranding this company had nothing to do with communication. It was just trying to make capital grow by making it the product and the commodity appeal new. You know, this is as simple as that. And then, you know, yeah, like hundreds of letterheads are destroyed or, or hundreds of thousands of letterheads. Logos have to be taken off the building, put new logos on top. Of, like this is like waste. Basically, I saw it happening in front of my eyes, you know. So this is, mm-hmm. this is the, for me, the problem with, with branding. But, but we also have to understand that the, the logos that people like Paul Rand made and, you know, all these amazing logo designs. I mean, even the Shell logo, I mean, it's a work of art. You know, those are, this is part of visual culture. I also have to, I also think it's important that, look, designers are, of course, also kind of like closeted artists in a way that where they actually don't do it for the money. They usually do it because they like to see their things in public space. But they have definitely, of course, a very strong link with art. And that's also visual, advertising is also visual culture, you know? So it's not like this is bad and that is good. But I think the people who make advertising now would also work in a different political system on visual culture. They just happen to work now to promote commodities because that's the jobs that we are have at the, at the disposal. So for me, like the aesthetics itself and the work of these people is, I don't think necessarily the, the whole issue. It's just a system about why certain things are paid and the other things are not. You know, I, I was never asked when I was working for in 20 years for studios, I was never asked to create a work about the climate crisis. Or I was never asked to create a work about drone warfare. So I did that like on my own time. Because what I was asked for was to work for these companies that basically already have enough communication. And then, yeah, you just make another version, like a lot of real estate work, like this kind of stuff, stuff that that really needs branding to keep evolving and to keep being renewed. And, you know, when you were talking about the, the logo redesign, it made me think about British Petroleum, you know, BP, 
and their logo now as a clean or green energy company is kind of like this sun kind of <laughs> kind of kind of thing and I can't think of anything less clean and and green than British Petroleum and and that entire industry, right? Not picking on them, they're all parasites. Um, but it's but the visual component of it is designed. There's that word again to make me have a different feel about British Petroleum because the idea is that we know at one point we were bad, but now we're trying to be better. It's it's almost an aspiration to what I want myself as a consumer to be. Right, that I consume in the global north. I'm I'm in the United States, but I want to feel good about those choices, <laughs> you know. And the logoing and the design of those things helps me potentially do that. And I want to speak to the way in which we've seen this evolution, and and start a, a little bit at the beginning where you talk about the designer as a scribe and why that became important as a entry point. And then I have like two others specifically that I want to go into. But scribe first. Sure. I mean, I touched upon it just briefly just before. But so before design was known as design, obviously, which just was fairly recent in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. That doesn't mean there was no visual communication, right? I mentioned a map before. So for me, it's it's also important to point out that uh, we've always had, you know, these graphic objects that kind of support economic relations. The idea being, uh, uh, I want to sell you my house. I need a kind of proof of, you know, property, proof of ownership. I mean, this was already happening in, in the Roman times. This is not like a new thing. And and graphic objects, whether they were carved in stone or cut in, you know, like uh, made in, in clay or printed uh, later on, you basically need, before the printing press, at least, you needed like this person in between that kind of inscribes this trust form, right? And what I thought is really interesting is that there were a lot of, before the, the printing press, for example, yeah, everything was written by hand. So if there was like a, a king or an emperor who had to convey a message, often these people like, like Charlemagne could not even read and write themselves, but they had people on staff that would write. And the people that would write would have a certain way of writing uh, called a script, like a manuscript, like a handwriting style. That was basically like a, an identity for that empire. So the Caroling, how do you call it? Uh, like you call it Charlemagne's handwriting is the name of the script that was used in his time that had to be taught to every scribe in his empire. So everything would look similar. So you would recognize Oh, but this is a letter from that is like a corporate identity, right? So I found it interesting that before the, the printing press, there was already this kind of idea of identity and also power relations within the writing itself, because it was, of course, very difficult to copy. Some of these, these hands, as they were called, were very intricate. They were so difficult to copy that it was a form of anti-counterfeiting. You know, So this is why I start with the scribe as the relationship as the kind of person who later be, became basically the printer. That was already like a, a kind of job. And the job was maybe a little bit like a graphic designer now where you, you, can, you cannot just do what you want because you still have to kind of convey the message of the client. You know, if, if the Dutch government asked me to make something for them, I have to use their identity, their typeface, their logo, et cetera. So it was actually not that different in when scribes would write things for, you know, kings and, and empires. Absolutely. And I want to jump to the idea of branding in design and how that has become so critical. And, and particularly, I found it interesting in the book, and, and this is probably a, a direct personal interest, because you highlighted the branding of cities and how 
the I Love New York logo in particular. And, you know, it's a, it's a logo I've known all my life because I am a New Yorker. And its birth and the, the advertising that went along with it was literally my childhood, like watching the I Love New York commercials and, and so on and so forth. And I want to give you an opportunity to, to talk a little bit more specifically about city branding, because that particular logo, like I've read the design book, that kind of the guidebook that goes along with the logo, and it uses language that is sort of the antithesis of how it's been used as a, as a logo to kind of sell New York. It, it talks very much about how and why it was designed and how it should be used. And it should be this notion of like deep love about the place and so on and so forth. So since I've used it in lectures, I wanted to hear your perspective just on cities in general and that logo in particular and how it has been used in, in such a commercial way. Yeah, I mean, of course, I Love New York is maybe one of the most famous logos in the world. It's also, I mean, definitely a really well-designed. Famously, uh, uh, Milton Glaser, the designer, also didn't get paid for it. But what actually brought me to this story, because so I know from Amsterdam, the I Amsterdam, which is also in the, you know, it's also a similar city branding, but then from 2014, completely different time, done by Kessel Kramer Advertising Studio. I, I knew this intricately also because my studio there where I used to work also worked for Amsterdam Marketing. And it was really clear that the purpose of this identity was not to, you know, make people in Amsterdam proud. It was to interact for an investment. Like that was really clear. To attract foreign investment, particularly real estate investment from outside of the Netherlands and wealthy tourists. Yeah, because, of course, Amsterdam gets a lot of like grungy tourists looking for, you know, weed, going to the red light district. Those are usually not the tourists that bring in all the money, right? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> and, and now they actually really succeeded in bringing in more tourists that are a little bit older and have more money to spend. And that has also shown in the tax you know, the tax income, but that has created this gentrification wave where actually poor people are being pushed out of the city, Airbnb has, has been allowed in, and, and the investment in real estate is now so staggering that, yeah, me as a teacher in art school uh, cannot afford to buy a house in, in my own city. You know, uh, this is, I, I would have to move somewhere else. I'm, I'm still renting with a rent cap, fortunately, but if I would leave here, I would have to leave the city. So I've seen this very like personally, on a personal level in my own city. And then David Harvey in his book about the brief history of neoliberalism, which is of course an amazing work, points out that the I Love New York logo was brought upon because the, the bankers that built out the city of New York at that time demanded there would be also uh, an advertising campaign to bring in tourists and to kind of appeal to this different kind of New York. And, and, and a similar process of gentrification and actually was going on at the time. And I also point out when I talk about this logo that that doesn't mean that not everybody can be super proud of this logo and that that logo probably united a lot of New Yorkers. And I think it still does. You know, it doesn't mean that logo does not have a very strong, positive, symbolic, collective workings. Uh, the I Amsterdam, not so much. It's also not as good as a logo, and it comes at a very different time also. I think the, the time when it was made, 1977, is also very important in New York. But we should also you know, remind ourselves that it's just, not just about the logo and the symbolic meaning and what people attach to it, but, but who paid for that logo and why was it instigated? 
You know, what was the political workings behind that? And I would love to see that uh, document you have. I, I haven't seen that, so that would be very interesting, actually, because there's, of course, a lot of information that I don't know. But I read this book about the fiscal crisis in New York at the time, and it becomes like absolutely clear. There was people like Donald Trump that were basically given tax breaks and that were really welcomed into the, the city. Real estate developers, businesses, tax vacations, all these things, while actually free education was canceled. Uh, you know, underfunding of police, underfunding of public utilities and underfunding of the subway and all these things. So I don't know, like it's, it's a very complicated issue, but I think it's important also because it's such a uh, well-known example. Yeah. And I think that's what I, I, I could send you the, the link to the guidebook. Um, and, you know, it's and, and that's why it, it like I said, it was a, a personal reference because I was I was five years old in 1977, right? Like I remember the blackout, you know, I remember Son of Sam, I remember the Yankees won the World Series, like all, all of those things. And so when your your home is depicted in, in such a way, like what you were explaining, it lives with you in, in a different place. And I think that that idea that, you know, when you talk about the fiscal crisis in New York, the way it was pre presented to us was the, federal government basically says, fuck off, right? Like that wasn't the, the headline, but it was something very close to that, that the Daily News could print. Like Ford tells US, tells New York, drop dead or something is the famous, famous headline. So the, the interesting thing is that the culture that underpins these places becomes something different when you try to attract a certain type of person. So the things that people think about New York are the very things that institutional New York wants to get rid of, you know, and it and you see this all all the time. So this gentrification is packaged and sold as something that is aspirational, right? So I want to continue on that thread to think about a Richard Florida, right? And and not to cast him as a villain. I think he's actually done a pretty good job at rethinking a lot of his ideas about the creative class that were very popular in those like let's call them the mid to late 2000s, right? But this idea of the creative class being something that is powerful to a city engenders these notions of design, right? These new pioneers, again, colonial language that are gonna come to a city and remake it into something different, right? So, you know, you mentioned Florida in, in the book, so I want to give an opportunity to kind of speak very plainly to how gentrification is a design process sometimes, right? It's policy that is sold to us through design. No, exactly. I, I remember very well that the book came out because I was working at, I had my first job at a design studio and everybody was talking about that book and I, I went out and, and looked for it and, and I read it. The people from I Amsterdam from that particular example were really inspired by this book. Uh, and I think he also could not foresee, yeah, the kind of, I think he didn't really completely understand the, ide the, the ideology and the consequences of this, because we also have to go back and somebody would have written that book if he wouldn't have wrote it, somebody else would have. Because in the 1980s, starting around the 19, end of the 1970s, 1980s, we started to completely get rid of all the manufacturing. So if design as a profession is not really linked to ma manufacturing anymore, which was slowly happening, then what is your relationship to manufacturing become basically a global branding operation? You know, that's when universities started to 
teach in English, design in English, you know, they started to talk about speculative design, let's talk about critical design, let's talk, started to talk about prototypes, there was things like, like droog, um, you know, all these kind of exper- experimental design things, because yeah, you were not, not anymore kind of directly mirrored to this manufacturing uh, reality, because it was out of sight, basically. And I think what still now happens is that so the origin of design from the industrial revolution is designers create commodities, right? They create, you know, the, there's the industrial process. They need designs for commodities and they also need these, those commodities to be promoted and uh, communicated, which is graphic design, right? So uh, designers are taught as long as design basically exists to create products, right? And at the moment, then that manufacturing is kind of like far away, then students at design school still feel they need to create products, but then for what? So now you get like, these five designs will change the housing crisis. These six new types of chairs will change the climate crisis. This is literally what happen- what's happening now in that's design. Now, of course, a new, very expensive chair made from, from mycelium will not solve the climate crisis because that's not going to be, you know, but it's still has the appeal of a prototype of innovation. And this is the whole kind of machine of, of economic process that it needs to communicate, you know, that we're still making stuff. There are still new things on the horizon. There's still, and designers need to be part of that. So f- the most difficult thing to, for design, and this is where it comes back to gentrification, is that you can also maybe sometimes say, I'm not going to make something. Or there's not a product that comes out of this, but maybe I'm involved in a process. Maybe my job is more facilitating. My, maybe my job is more about trying to understand what's going on and maybe not even create something new. And that is something that designers find very hard because you cannot put it in your portfolio. You cannot you know, get into a museum. You cannot get written about in a design magazine without an actual object coming out of that. And that's why it's so difficult for design to kind of disconnect from this materiality in some aspects. And that's also, I think, really important because in gentrification, you see the same thing where I saw in my own neighborhood where buildings that were fine to begin with were just destroyed just to make room for something new. So it's always this kind of looking for something new that is, I think, yeah, like parallel to the to the idea of perpetual growth that, that a system like capital, capitalism needs in order to sustain itself. And it's interesting when you start talking about what's new and these the notions of kind of moving moving things forward. There's now other movements in the design space. I've talked to lots of folks who are, are designers and would say that they're in like a decolonizing design space where they're trying to bring new ideas, new concepts that are incorporating ethics, justice, they're from the global South, more likely, you know, we're getting voices from Africa, from South America, from Asia, voices that have not been traditionally included when we think about design, right? And so though not really a function of, of this book, I'm curious how those attempts and that works, I'm not going to say attempts because it's it's happening. How does that fit into or confront the bigger macro system of capitalism, you know, like, because what you don't want to have is just replacing one group with just another group, but the ideologies remain the same of the materiality of the perpetual nature of it. So again, this is literally just bubbled up in my head. So it might be a little off kilter of a question, but curious if that's come up as you think about design in new spaces, just generally. 
So my first book, The Politics of Design, was more focused around this, right? So I started mm-hmm. basically, my, my first writing was because I was working at a design studio and I saw that, first of all, many Dutch people were not represented in the way magazines. And, and, and I knew that because I was making those magazines and every time I was asked to put like a young white girl with blue eyes on the front, while actually in the inside, it was only old white men talking, you know? So, and this kind of, and, and this was like similarly to the kind of the rise of Islamophobia in, in, in the Netherlands, uh, no Dutch graphic designer ever gets taught how to typeset Arabic, you know? They just don't get taught that, but that's still a language that many people speak because they have a certain background. So, so these kind of questions is what my first book was about, and also a lot of that focused around gender and issues about race that I think now, uh, five years later, are are really being kind of discussed more broadly. I think that's a positive, a positive thing. But then again, like I show in the book uh, caps lock, uh, I show also pink washing. I show like a shell logo with like a, a rainbow background. You know, like yeah, I mean that's not progress you know that's so the danger is a little bit because design is so good in creating surfaces you know that designers are just asked to can you provide like you you were talking about bp can you make bp look more green can you make you know nike look more pro lgbt can you make this company look more pro trans rights or or whatever while in fact the same systems are at work and within the company and how they're produced and etc so this is something that we have to be watchful for and, and something that i point out in the book but another thing that kind of mostly in the book works is that I also try to point out that, for example, when you talk about something like property rights and the way we look at mapping, that many indigenous mappings, uh, map systems do not see land as something that can be owned because they don't uh, see land as specifically something that somebody can just take and cut up and do whatever they want because that land has a history, that land has an ecology, and that will also have a future, you know, for very different reasons. So learning from indigenous practices, and particularly in Latin America, there's, I think, a lot of interesting work being done there right now, or at least being was done already, but now has been more communicated, let's put it like that, can be really helpful. I think people like iconoclasistas from Argentina who are doing community mapping and and these kind of things are, are very interesting. And another aspect is also what I write about in the designer's amateur, because who can call themselves designer? Like most of the time when at least in Western Europe or in the global north, we're talking about design, we're talking about a very specific definition of that word. But if you have a community anywhere on the world that is not close to a design school, you know, that doesn't have access to paid design work, does that mean there's no design in that space? No, I think there's design everywhere, you know? So do we categorize it then as craft just because it's not being paid for by multinationals and, it's, and somebody doesn't have a BA or an MA in their name? You know, so so we also have to watch a little bit out in this kind of, or when we see maybe design from the global south uh, being elevated to the status of design, or in some cases, it's done by somebody who has that power or that agency, right? Bringing to a gallery or something. So I I think we need to uh, we need to take still design seriously, and we have to have certain standards, whether it's for for health and safety, but also for ethical reasons. But we also should open up design for other forms of knowledge and. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of the work of uh, Sasha Kostanschuk from uh, who wrote his book Design Justice, which is an amazing. It's come up quite often. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is an amazing book, and and she is really clear about this that that in order to move away from competition to care, if we want to, you know, see design as a as a profession that is more about caring for products, for communication, for environment, rather than seeing each other and everything else as competitors, then we can really learn a lot from the way that 
uh, design is done outside of kind of these you know, multinationals and these kind of spaces. And because also this is how I basically was taught design, you know, you, you think about logos, you think about like Nike, Apple, IBM, you know, like these are multinationals from the global North that come to mind. How is that the only form of design or the most iconic forms of design that, that we know, you know? So I think we also have a, have a task to kind of like diversify in, in many different ways, not just uh, this person here and this person there, but also like uh, about class backgrounds, about different forms of knowledge, about different kind of languages and a different if, uh, knowledge systems to also understand there's, there's many kinds of design and creativity in the world. And, and I think we can learn especially a lot from kind of that exchange because at the moment it's more like a defensive aspect where people are continuously complaining they're losing something you know and i i think that is something that we yeah we should avoid you know we should be generous towards uh being open up to to other forms of of knowledge and culture i think that can only be an enrichment absolutely i I think it it speaks to the scarcity model that is that capitalism lends like is anchored right that the the world is a place that has incredible scarcity and the more that we compete those who are the winners will rise to the top and those who don't will fall to the bottom. And that's the natural state of things. Clearly, this is not the natural state of things. And I love the fact that you that you brought up the amateur section, particularly as it pertains to the education piece, because you preempted my next question. I was actually going to ask you how those two things come together. So you you saw my map without even without even having seen it. Um, and and I think that was a, a beautiful way to think about it because I think there is a the the academy and I'm I'm using again using that word very broadly is the one to co-sign and and tell us what is right and what is not and those who don't have access to or want to work and and build outside of those systems have every right to do so and it's incumbent upon us to grant them that ability so that's my preamble after you answered my question that wasn't officially asked. So I want to get to the final two segments of the show because I'm keeping an eye on time and the book is great. So we can, I know we can just keep going and I want to prevent myself from doing that. So the final two segments of the show are off the dome and the drop and off the dome are just rapid fire questions. And I have three of them for you. You know, the first one is what is the craziest, most eyebrow raising request that you have received as a designer? Uh, the strangest requests. There was one There was one person that I kn- knew from social circles who, who said he had an import and export business and it was never clear what was the import and export and, and there was like no briefing and I never got paid. I made like three, three identities. And later I thought this, that must have been some kind of like drug thing or like some <laughs> kind of like cover, you know? I, I don't know, but... I don't know. There was some something strange about this, and it was like an office in this. Yeah. So this this kind of these kind of things happen, like where you where you meet as a designer, this kind of shady world between. Well, not shady because I, you know, I'm a. I, I don't I don't think we should talk about things that are like illegal, legal, and in such manners. But yeah. where you kind of where you kind of see like how these worlds merge, you know. When, whenever I hear import exporter. It just reminds me of of Seinfeld. <laughs> I, I don't know how much you've watched it, but when George George used to lie and tell people, you know, his this what this company Vandalay Industries did, he'd just always be like, "Oh, they're import exporter," but never like give any sort of details beyond that. So anytime I hear that now, 
I just think like Vandalay Industries. <laughs> um, if you can think, um, second question, if you can think of one of the best design elements you've seen and one of the worst design elements you've seen, it doesn't have to be corporate logo kind of thing, but what would be one of your examples from the best category and one example from the worst category where you're like, what the hell was that? <laughs> you, and you mean like a, like a graphic element or you mean like a conceptual? It could be anything. You know, like I'll, as an example, this is a, a branded logo, like Kia recently changed their logo and the car company. And to me, it doesn't even look like it spells Kia anymore. I, every time I see it, I'm like, I don't even know what this is. Whereas the other logo was super clear. Like I knew it was Kia. This one, I'm like, K&A, Ka, like it's just confusing, right? So I always make fun of it. So do you have like a, a one that you think really stands out and want and something that you think just misses the mark? Well, I mean, the last one uh, is, of course, the easiest. Uh, I, I don't know that CIA rebranding was uh, like a bit of a thing last year. And uh, in, uh, <laughs> there's this kind of graphic design nerdy thing where people were all talking about it because they asked this like super hip studio to make this this rebranding for the CIA. And it basically looks like I don't know, club design from 10 years ago. So you then you see that everything, like every aesthetic, like Mark Fisher said, like every aesthetic can be appropriated by by states, even by, you know, by by something like the CIA, you know, particularly known for their kind of humanitarian uh, operational uh, aspects. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and yeah, I don't know in terms of uh, in terms of like a positive aspect, I I just and this is like a cheesy thing, but I just always get happy when I, I was driving my bike today around the neighborhood. And there's these, I live in this uh, neighborhood and uh, that's a little bit farther away from the center where there's a lot of small shops, like, mm -hmm. you know, like, like shops that are owned by one person. And, and it's also hilarious because you meet the strangest shop owners, you know, and, and the logos that, that are on the, the windows and they're always like half peeling off. And I don't know, that kind of stuff just. <laughs> I mean, I know it's also cheesy, this kind of vernacular, but at least it's like sincere, you know, yeah. like it's, it's completely clear who did what and why it's there. You know, nobody's trying to con you into anything. It's just what it is. You know, I don't know. There's just something, something like natural and, and something comforting about that, like the way that people use an autograph or yeah. have a certain handwriting style. You know, I, I don't know. I like that. It is very refreshing. I, I understand exactly what you mean. We need some more of that emotion in the world. And the final off the dome question is, sounds kind of big, but doesn't need to be because the, I think the book does really such an incredible job of really bringing a lot of these things to light. And, you know, I want to give an opportunity that if you can share one notion or one idea with the world, pretending like everyone in the world is going to hear this, right? They're not, <laughs> but let's just say everybody in the world was to, what would that idea or notion be? Maybe that that when I started writing the book, I didn't know if I if it could be written. I don't know if it was a thesis I could prove. And the reason why the book materialized is because at some point I, I was reading about the history of, of graphic design and then and then I was like, how did we get here? And then I was talking to the six collectives that are in the back of the book that are cooperatives, that are, are working out of Brazil, uh, working in collective houses as activists working in Argentina uh, as, as feminist cooperatives. And, and I got so much energy from that, you know, to see not only that people are already doing that, but they have been doing that for, for 10 years. And that just starting to do something, you know, not, not waiting for a book to come out or not waiting for somebody to tell you what to do, but just 
the power of people that just get get an idea like that in their head to start a cooperative or to to do some kind of like the brave new alps they're like in the north of italy working in their community uh, and and helping people doing this mutual aid like very natural kind of things integrating in their design work is just for me super inspiring you know that was for me the moment when i was like am i going to finish this book yes i am going to finish this book that's awesome. I, I love that. You know, sometimes we got to be in the world and just do and find each other in order in order to do it. It's a beautiful notion. So the final section is the drop and the drop is anything at all that we want to recommend to my listeners. So I'll go first and my drop. I probably have had it as a drop before. To be honest, I don't quite remember, but the show just ended. So I'm bringing it so it's in fresh in my mind and the show is called The Expanse and it's on Amazon Prime, but it's got its home on Sci-Fi, which is a kind of an American network. Not sure how much it's around the world. And it's just a fantastic like science fiction show. Like if it's if science fiction is not your thing, it might not be your thing. But it actually does a little bit more than that because I find like the story is kind of like a story of Earth, but just out in space about different groups of people trying to come together, who feels they're owed what and why. The language that they use in the show is, is really interesting for, for one group of people. And I read a lot about how they came up with the particular inflections and the way in which they speak. And the show ran for six seasons total, was based off a series of books. And it just wrapped up and I just found like the expanse is something I keep coming back to all the time. There's lots of earthbound lessons, despite the fact the show is largely set in outer space. So that's my drop. Awesome. I have to check it out. I love sci-fi. So, well, I had a different one in mind, but it's nice to follow like the sci-fi uh, thing. I, I I used to read a lot of sci-fi, but a lot of William Gibson, a lot of yeah guys writing about stuff, mostly technological stuff, even though they're amazing writers. I love still William Gibson, but then I discovered Octavia Butler and, and Ursula Le Guin, and it, I mean, that, that just completely made me fall in love again with sci-fi and, and especially the, the way that Octavia Butler writes. But I, I want to share uh, in this one, one by Ursula Le Guin that I, I love is The Dispossessed because in this book, she writes about uh, basically an anarchist civilization, an anarchist planet, uh, but it's definitely not a utopia. You know, there's all sorts of shit that's going to go wrong. And and what I love in this book is that she also points out that the, the utopia is always between utopian ideas, you know, like just as capitalism sounded utopian at that moment of, of liberating people from their family, from religion, from the feudal lords, only, you know, it's only about yourself, you know, you, it's only up to you if you can be successful or not, which was a false promise. But then, you know, I also don't think a, a pure anarchist society would actually be a utopia, you know, so, so this fact that that negotiating between these kind of different forms of sometimes being, yeah, sometimes being egalitarian, but also sometimes we need maybe hierarchy. Sometimes we need structure for for some very simple reasons. I think she, she illustrates that beautifully in this book by these kind of two civilizations that are kind of continuously uh, uh, like discussing with each other. And this is also the good kind of science fiction that puts kind of care and soft values at its center. So I can I can recommend that one. That's a great recommendation. You know, anyone who listens to the show knows that Ursula Le Guin and Octavia Butler are both heroes and just prescient visionaries in, in so many ways. So never have a problem with anybody recommending their work, inc incredible work. 
Ruben, I want to thank you so much for, for being on the show. It's an amazing conversation. Caps Lock is, I, I feel, is a, a must-get, must-read for folks who are interested in these topics. And it goes much broader than even the title will will tell you. So it's it's been a pleasure having you on the deep dive with me. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. And um, I don't know, like I'm I'm curious what will what will come from all this. I mean, yeah, to be continued. To be continued. Always to be continued. Thank you so much, my brother. Thank you. Have a nice day. You too. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.